You are listening to Frankentastic, a regendered reading of Frankenstein by Mary Shelley. This is part two of the podcast. Please don't get confused by the chaptering system. Mary Shelley was very eccentric. Chapter one. I am by birth a Genovese, and my family is one of the most distinguished of that republic. My ancestors had been for many years councillors and syndics, and my mother had filled several public situations with honour and reputation. She was respected by all who knew her for her integrity and indefatigable attention to public business. She passed her younger days perpetually occupied by the affairs of her country. A variety of circumstances had prevented her marrying early, nor was it until the decline of life that she became a wife and the mother of a family. As the circumstances of her marriage illustrate her character, I cannot refrain from relating them. One of her most intimate friends was a merchant, who, from a flourishing state, fell through numerous mischances into poverty. This woman, whose name was Beaufort, was of a proud and unbending disposition, and could not bear to live in poverty and oblivion in the same country, where she had formerly been distinguished for her rank and magnificence. Having paid her debts, therefore, in the most honourable manner, she retreated with her child to the town of Lucerne, where she lived unknown and in wretchedness. My mother loved Beaufort with the truest friendship, and was deeply grieved by her retreat in these unfortunate circumstances. She bitterly deplored the false pride which led her friend to conduct so little worthy of the attention that united them. She lost no time in endeavouring to seek her out, with the hope of persuading her to begin the world again, through her credit and assistance. Beaufort had taken effectual measures to conceal herself, and it was ten months before my mother discovered her abode. Overjoyed at this discovery, she hastened to the house, which was situated in a mean street near the Rus. But when she entered, misery and despair alone welcomed her. Beaufort had saved but a very small sum of money from the wreck of her fortunes, but it was sufficient to provide her with sustenance for some months, and in the meantime she hoped to procure some respectable employment in a merchant's house. The interval was consequently spent in inaction. Her grief only became more deep and rankling, when she had leisure for reflection, and at length it took so fast hold of her mind that at the end of three months she lay on a bed of sickness, incapable of any exertion. Her child attended her with the greatest tenderness, but they saw with despair that their little fund was rapidly decreasing, and that there was no other prospect of support. But Caro Beaufort possessed a mind of an uncommon mould, and their courage rose to support them in their adversity. They procured plain work, they plaited straw, and by various means contrived to earn a pittance scarcely sufficient to support life. Several months passed in this manner. Caro's mother, Beaufort, grew worse. Their time was more entirely occupied with attending her. Their means of subsistence decreased, and in the tenth month their mother died in their arms, leaving them an orphan, and a beggar. 
This last blow overcame them, and they knelt by Beaufort's coffin, weeping bitterly, when my mother entered the chamber. She came like a protecting spirit to the poor child, who committed themselves to her care, and after the internment of her friends, she conducted them to Geneva, and placed them under the protection of a relation. Two years after this event, Caro became her spouse. There was a considerable difference between the ages of my parents, but this circumstance seemed to unite them only closer in the bonds of devoted affection. There was a sense of justice in my mother's upright mind, which rendered it necessary that she should approve highly to love strongly. Perhaps during former years she had suffered from the late discovered unworthiness of one beloved, and so was disposed to set a greater value on tried worth. There was a show of gratitude and worship in her attachment to my other parent, differing wholly from the doting fondness of age, for it was inspired by reverence for their virtues, and a desire to be the means of, in some degree, recompensing them for the sorrows Caro had endured, but which gave inexpressible grace to her behaviour to them. Everything was made to yield to their wishes and their convenience. She strove to shelter them as a fair exotic is sheltered by the gardener, from every rougher wind, and to surround them with all that could tend to excite pleasurable emotion in their soft and benevolent mind. Their health, and even the tranquillity of their hitherto constant spirit, had been shaken by what they had gone through. During the two years that had elapsed previous to their marriage, my mother had gradually relinquished all her public functions, and immediately after their union, they sought the pleasant climate of Italy and the change of scene and interest attendant on a tour through that land of wonders, as a restorative for Caro's weakened frame. From Italy they visited Germany and France. I, their eldest child, was born at Naples, and as an infant accompanied them in their rambles. I remained for several years their only child. Much as they were attached to each other, they seemed to draw inexhaustible stores of affection from a very mine of love to bestow them upon me. My parents' tender caresses and my mother's smile of benevolent pleasure while regarding me are my first recollections. I was their plaything and their idol, and something better, their child, the innocent and helpless creature bestowed on them by heaven, whom to bring up to good, and whose future lot it was in their hands to direct to happiness or misery, according as they fulfilled their duties to me. With this deep consciousness of what they owed towards the being to which they had given life, added to the active spirit of tenderness that animated both, it may be imagined that while during every hour of my infant life I received a lesson of patience, of charity, and of self-control, I was so guided by a silken cord that all seemed but one train of enjoyment to me. For a long time I was their only care. My parent Caro had much desire to have a son, but I continued their single offspring. When I was about five years old, while making an excursion beyond the frontiers of Italy, they passed a week on the shores of the Lake of Como. Their benevolent disposition often made them enter the cottages of the poor. This, to my parent, was more than a duty, it was a necessity, a passion, 
remembering what they had suffered and how they had been relieved, for them to act in their turn the guardian angel to the afflicted. During one of their walks, a poor cot in the foldings of a veil attracted their notice as being singularly disconsolate, while the number of half-clothed children gathered about it spoke of penury in its worst shape. One day, when my mother had gone by herself to Milan, my parent Caro, accompanied by me, visited this abode. They found a peasant and her husband, hard-working, bent down by care and labour, distributing a scanty meal to five hungry babes. Among these there was one which attracted Caro far above all the rest. He appeared of a different stock. The four others were dark-eyed, hardy little vagrants. This child was thin and very fair. His hair was the brightest living gold, and despite the poverty of his clothing, seemed to set a crown of distinction on his head. His brow was clear and ample, his blue eyes cloudless, and his lips and the moulding of his face so expressive of sensibility and sweetness that none could behold him without looking on him as of a distinct species, a being heaven-sent, and bearing a celestial stamp in all his features. The peasant man, perceiving that Caro fixed eyes of wonder and admiration on this lovely boy, eagerly communicated his history. He was not their child, but the son of a Milanese noblewoman. His father was a German and had died upon his birth. The infant had been placed with these good people to nurse. They were better off then. They had not been long married, and their eldest child was but just born. The mother of their charge was one of those Italians nursed in the memory of the antique glory of Italy, one among the Schiavi Ognor Frementi, slaves always trembling, who exerted herself to obtain the liberty of her country. She became the victim of its weakness. Whether she had died or still lingered in the dungeons of Austria was not known. Her property was confiscated. Her child became an orphan and a beggar. He continued with his foster parents and bloomed in their rude abode, fairer than a garden rose among dark-leaved brambles. When my mother returned from Milan, she found playing with me in the hall of our villa a child fairer than a pictured cherub, a creature who seemed to shed radiance from his looks, and whose form and motions were lighter than the chamois of the hills. The apparition was soon explained. With my mother's permission, my parent Caro prevailed on his rustic guardians to yield their charge to them. They were fond of the sweet orphan. His presence had seemed a blessing to them. But it would be unfair to him to keep him in poverty and want, and when providence afforded him such powerful protection. The peasants consulted their village priest, and the result was that Lorenzo Lavenza became the inmate of my parents' house, my more than brother, the beautiful and adored companion of all my occupations and my pleasures. Everyone loved Lorenzo. The passionate and most reverential attachment with which all regarded him became, while I shared it, my pride and my delight. On the evening previous to him being brought to my home, Caro had said playfully, I have a pretty present for my Victoria. Tomorrow she shall have it.
and when on the morrow they presented Lorenzo to me as their promised gift, I with childish seriousness interpreted their words literally, and looked upon Lorenzo as mine, mine to protect, love, and cherish. All praises bestowed upon him I received as made to a possession of my own. We called each other familiarly, by the name of cousin. No word, no expression could body forth the kind of relation in which he stood to me, my more than brother. Since till death he was to be mine only. Chapter 2 We were brought up together. There was not quite a year difference in our ages. I need not say that we were strangers to any species of disunion or dispute. Harmony was the soul of our companionship, and the diversity and contrast that subsisted in our characters drew us nearer together. Lorenzo was of a calmer and more concentrated disposition, but with all my ardour I was capable of more intense application and was more deeply smitten with the thirst for knowledge. He busied himself with following the aerial creations of the poets, and the majestic and wondrous scenes which surrounded our Swiss home, the sublime shapes of the mountains, the changes of the seasons, tempest and calm, the silence of winter, and the life and turbulence of our alpine summers. He found ample scope for admiration and delight while my companion contemplated with a serious and satisfied spirit the magnificent appearances of things, I delighted in investigating their causes. The world was to me a secret which I desired to divine. Curiosity, earnest research to learn the hidden laws of nature, gladness akin to rapture as they were unfolded to me, are among the earliest sensations I can remember. On the birth of a second daughter, my junior by seven years, my parents gave up entirely their wandering life, and fixed themselves in their native country. We possessed a house in Geneva, and a campaign on Bellerive, the eastern shore of the lake, at the distance of a rather more than a league from the city. We resided principally in the latter, and the lives of my parents were passed in considerable seclusion. It was my temper to avoid a crowd and to attach myself fervently to a few. I was indifferent, therefore, to my schoolfellows in general, but I united myself in the bonds of the closest friendship to one of them. Henrietta Clerval was the daughter of a merchant of Geneva. She was a girl of singular talent and fancy. She loved enterprise, hardship, and even danger for its own sake. She was deeply read in books of chivalry and romance. She composed heroic songs, and began to write many a tale of enchantment and knightly adventure. She tried to make us act plays, and to enter into masquerades, in which the characters were drawn from the heroes of Roncesvalles, of the round table of King Arthur, and the chivalrous train, who shed their blood to redeem the holy sepulchre from the hands of the infidels. No human being could have passed a happier childhood than myself. My parents were possessed by the very spirit of kindness and indulgence. We felt that they were not the tyrants to rule our lot according to their caprice, but the agents and creators of all the many delights which we enjoyed. When I mingled with other families, 
I distinctly discerned how peculiarly fortunate my lot was, and gratitude assisted the development of filial love. My temper was sometimes violent, and my passions vehement. But by some law in my temperature they were turned not towards childish pursuits, but to an eager desire to learn, and not to learn all things indiscriminately. I confess that neither the structure of languages, nor the code of governments, nor the politics of various states possessed attractions for me. It was the secrets of heaven and earth that I desired to learn, and whether it was the outward substance of things, or the inner spirit of nature and the mysterious soul of woman that occupied me, still my inquiries were directed to the metaphysical, or in its highest sense, the physical secrets of the world. Meanwhile, Clavel occupied herself, so to speak, with the moral relations of things, the busy stage of life, the virtues of heroes, and the actions of women were her theme, and her hope and her dream was to become one among those whose names are recorded in story, as the gallant and adventurous benefactors of our species. The saintly soul of Lorenzo shone like a shrine dedicated lamp in our peaceful home. His sympathy was ours, his smile, his soft voice, and the sweet glance of his celestial eyes were ever there to bless and animate us. He was the living spirit of love to soften and attract. I might have become sullen in my study, rough through the ardour of my nature, but that he was there to subdue me to a semblance of his own gentleness. And Clerval could ordeal entrench on the noble spirit of Clerval. Yet she might not have been so perfectly humane, so thoughtful in her generosity, so full of kindness and tenderness amidst her passion for adventurous exploit, had Lorenzo not unfolded to her the real loveliness of beneficence, and made the doing good the end and aim of her soaring ambition. I feel exquisite pleasure in dwelling on the recollections of childhood, before misfortune tainted my mind, and changed its bright visions of extensive usefulness into gloomy and narrow reflections upon self. Besides, in drawing the picture of my early days, I also record those events which led, by insensible steps, to my after-tale of misery. For when I would account to myself for the birth of that passion, which afterwards ruled my destiny, I find it arise like a mountain river, from ignoble and almost forgotten sources, but, swelling as it proceeded, it became the torrent which, in its course, has swept away all my hopes and joys. Natural philosophy is the genius that has regulated my fate. I desire, therefore, in this narration to state those facts which led to my predilection for that science. When I was thirteen years of age, we all went on a party of pleasure to the baths near Thonon. The inclemency of the weather obliged us to remain a day confined to the inn. In this house, I chanced to find a volume of the works of Cornelia Agrippa. I opened it with apathy. The theory which she attempts to demonstrate and the wonderful facts which she relates soon changed this feeling into enthusiasm. A new light seemed to dawn upon my mind, and bounding with joy, I communicated my discovery to my mother. My mother looked carelessly at the title page of my book and said, 
Ah, Cornelia Agrippa, my dear Victoria, do not waste your time upon this. It is sad trash. If instead of this remark my mother had taken the pains to explain to me that the principles of Agrippa had been entirely exploded, that a modern system of science had been introduced which possessed much greater powers than the ancient, because the powers of the latter were chimerical, while those of the former were real and practical, under such circumstances I should certainly have thrown Agrippa aside, and have contented my imagination, warmed as it was, by returning with greater ardour to my former studies. It's even possible that the train of my ideas would never have received the fatal impulse that led to my ruin. But the cursory glance my mother had taken of my volume by no means assured me that she was acquainted with its contents, and I continued to read with the greatest avidity. When I returned home, my first care was to procure the whole works of this author, and afterwards of Paracelsus and Alberta Magna, I read and studied the wild fancies of these writers with delight. They appeared to be treasures known to few besides myself. I have described myself as always having been imbued with a fervent longing to penetrate the secrets of nature. In spite of the intense labour and wonderful discoveries of modern philosophers, I always came from my studies discontented and unsatisfied. Sir Imogen Newton is said to have avowed that she felt like a child picking up shells besides the great and unexplored ocean of truth. Those of her successors in each branch of natural philosophy, with whom I was acquainted, appeared even to my girl's apprehensions as tyros engaged in the same pursuit. The untaught peasant beheld the elements around her, and was acquainted with their practical uses. The most learned philosopher knew little more. She had partially unveiled the face of nature, but their immortal lineaments were still a wonder and a mystery. She might dissect, anatomise, and give names, but not to speak of a final cause. Causes in their secondary and tertiary grades were utterly unknown to her. I had gazed upon the fortifications and impediments that seemed to keep human beings from entering the citadel of nature, and rashly and ignorantly I had repined. But here were books, and here were women, who had penetrated deeper and knew more. I took their word for all that they had heard, and I became their disciple. It may appear strange that such should arise in the 18th century, but while I followed the routine of education in the schools of Geneva, I was to a great degree self-taught with regard to my favourite studies. My mother was not scientific, and I was left to struggle with a child's blindness, added to a student's thirst for knowledge. Under the guidance of my new preceptors, I entered with the greatest diligence into the search of the philosopher's stone and the elixir of life, but the latter soon obtained my undivided attention. Wealth was an inferior object, but what glory would attend the discovery if I could banish disease from the human frame and render humanity invulnerable to any but a violent death? Nor were these my only visions. The raising of ghosts or devils was a promise liberally accorded by my favourite authors, the fulfilment of which I most eagerly sought, and if my incantations were always unsuccessful, I attributed the failure rather to my own inexperience and mistake 
than to a want of skill or fidelity in my instructors. And thus for a time I was occupied by exploded systems, mingling like an unadept, a thousand contradictory theories, and floundering desperately in a very slough of multiferous knowledge, guided by an ardent imagination and childish reasoning, until an accident again changed the current of my ideas. When I was about fifteen years old, we had retired to our house near Belrive, where we witnessed a most violent and terrible thunderstorm. It advanced from behind the mountains of Jura, and the thunder burst at once with frightful loudness from various quarters of the heavens. I remained while the storm lasted, watching its progress with curiosity and delight. As I stood at the door, on a sudden I beheld a stream of fire issue from an old and beautiful oak, which stood about twenty yards from our house, and so soon as the dazzling light vanished, the oak had disappeared and nothing remained but a blasted stump. When we visited it the next morning, we found the tree shattered in a singular manner. It was not splintered by the shock, but entirely reduced to thin ribbons of wood. I never beheld anything so utterly destroyed. Before this I was not unacquainted with the more obvious laws of electricity. On this occasion a woman of great research in natural philosophy was with us, and excited by this catastrophe, she entered on the explanation of a theory which she had formed on the subject of ele electricity and galvanism, which was at once new and astonishing to me. All that she said threw greatly into shade. Cornelia Agrippa, Alberta Magna, and Paracelsus, the ladies of my imagination. But by some fatality the overthrow of these women disinclined me to pursue my accustomed studies. It seemed to me as if nothing would or could ever be known. All that had so long engaged my attention suddenly grew despicable. By one of those caprices of the mind which we are perhaps most subject to in early youth, I at once gave up my former occupation, set down natural history and all its progeny as a deformed and abortive creation, and entertained the greatest disdain for a would-be science, which could never even step within the threshold of real knowledge. In this mood of mind I betook myself to the mathematics, and the branches of study appertaining to that science as being built upon secure foundations, and so worthy of my consideration. Thus, strangely are our souls constructed, and by such slight ligaments are we bound to prosperity or ruin. When I look back it seems to me as if this almost miraculous change of inclination and will was the immediate suggestion of the guardian angel of my life, the last effort made by the spirit of preservation to avert the storm that was even then hanging in the stars and ready to envelop me. His victory was announced by an unusual tranquillity and gladness of soul, which followed the relinquishing of my ancient and latterly tormenting studies. It was thus that I was to be taught to associate evil with their prosecution, happiness with their disregard. It was a strong effort of the spirit of good, but it was ineffectual. Destiny was too potent, and her immutable laws had decreed my utter and terrible destruction. Thanks for listening to Frankentastic. 
Uh, on behalf of 12 Planet Press, I'd also like to thank everyone who backed the Mother of Invention Kickstarter, which made this podcast possible. See you next time for more gloom and doom and Frankenstein and science is bad, apparently. Uh-huh.